Today is a little unusual. Uh, for the past uh, month, uh, we've been lighting candles and celebrating Advent, building up to Christmas. And for some of you, you've spent the last month, maybe two months, you've been buying gifts and wrapping gifts and shopping and planning uh, all this big event and, and all these family gatherings. For some of you, you've been juggling schedules and trying to make sure that you saw all your family and didn't leave anybody out. And uh, for kids, they've been for months now making lists of the things they were looking forward to and uh, having all these things they were excited about and then seeing presents on the tree and uh, this anticipation of what was behind that wrapping paper and what was in those boxes that were there under the tree. And there was this buildup and it just kept building and building and building and building until boom, all of a sudden this magical day happened. And then what took you hours to wrap was suddenly undone within a few minutes or maybe even a few seconds. And the hours of shopping and cooking uh, were over really within a matter of hours. A family came and they visited and then they went back to their home. And so for some of you, the only difference between today and a few days ago is honestly a, a kind of a slower schedule. Uh, maybe you've got a few newer gadgets or toys. And maybe you've got some leftovers in the fridge. Maybe you've got a few extra pounds on the waistline. Uh, but for some of us, uh, there, there just isn't much of a difference between today and if we backed up maybe a month or two months ago. For most of us, we hadn't quite got to the point where we're taking down the Christmas tree or decorations, but uh, let's be honest, that's probably going to happen for many of us within the next week or, or probably within the next two weeks. And so all the decorations, we'll take them, we'll box them back up, and then our house will go back to normal. Our work will go back to normal. School will go back to normal. And everything will look like it did in November or maybe for October for some of you really early decorators. And for some of you, in this next week, there will be no evidence of Christmas left in your house at all. All the leftovers will be eaten. All the decorations will be gone. For some of you, there'll be no evidence of Christmas left anywhere in your life. And you really have to ask this question, did Christmas change anything for me? We have this huge build-up to this huge celebration. Did it change anything? Or do we live our lives really like our Christmas decorations? That We, we bring them out, we get ready for this one big event, and we, we put everything out on display for this one big event, and then when it's over, we just put it all back in the box. And then we put it in the attic or the garage or wherever we store our stuff, and and it just stays there for a whole year almost, just never to be seen of or heard from again. And so we really have to ask this question of ourselves, did Christmas make a difference for you? And if it did, what difference did it make? This morning we're going to look at a passage in Matthew chapter 2. And honestly, it's a passage that doesn't get very much attention because uh, for, for good reason, it's not a very happy, pleasant story uh, for most of it. But this story is, is presented in this story. We have two very different characters in uh, Matthew chapter 2. See, Matthew tells the Christmas story. He tells a very short version of it in chapter 1. And then he skips a couple years. And the first thing that happens in chapter 2 is the visit of the wise men. Right? Now, I want to make clear, just because this is for me, uh, that he skips this couple years. Uh, the wise men did not show up at the manger scene. Okay, I know that's in almost every nativity set you've seen, that the shepherds are on one side, the wise men are on the other, but that's not what happened. Right? So it was probably probably close to two years, if not slightly uh, less than that, that the, the, the wise men showed up. They didn't show up at the stable. They, they weren't there with the shepherds. They didn't see the same thing the shepherds did. Uh, these guys were a little late to the party, uh, but they did show up eventually, and it was probably about two years after the birth of Christ. And so uh, that's a story that many of you are familiar with, but that's not the story we're going to talk about. We're not going to talk about their travels and following the star and all those great movies that you see and all that. We're going to skip all that, and we're going to start in verse 12. 
this morning to what happens after they visit Jesus. Right? So in Matthew chapter 2, we'll start in verse 12 and we'll read down through verse 23. So verse 12 starts off and it says, And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. After they were gone, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Get up. Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and stay there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and escaped to Egypt. And he stayed there until Herod's death so that it was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt I called my son. Verse 16, then Herod said, or excuse me, then Herod, when he saw that he had been outwitted by the wise men, flew into a rage. He gave orders to massacre all the male children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, in keeping with the time that he had learned from the wise men. And this was spoken through the prophet, or through Jeremiah the prophet, was fulfilled. A voice in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeps for her children, and she refuses to be consoled, because they are no more. Verse 19, After Herod died, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, because those who sought your child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and entered the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling in Judea, in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the region of Galilee. And he went and he settled in a town called Nazareth to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, that he will be called a Nazarene. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much that Christmas really did happen. God, we thank you that we've had this, this month of building up to this day of this excitement and, and this, this energy that's been all around this place with the lighting of candles and having communion just a few days ago and Christmas Eve. And God, we thank you so much that we get to celebrate that wonderful birthday of Christ, knowing what it led to us and the forgiveness that it brought to us. So God, I pray this morning that we not let that fade away. I pray this morning that the excitement that we had over Christmas, that, that it just continues on through each and every day of our lives. God, I pray this morning that you will use this text, this, this historical event, God, to teach us more about who you are and how we can live in the comfort of who you are. God, I pray this morning because of what Christmas is, I pray that it confronts us and that we are forced to make this choice, either to obey or to oppress it and to repress it, Father. And so, God, I pray this morning that we will choose to be obedient to you. God, I pray that through Christmas we are solidified and we are solid and we are resolute in what we want to do above all else, God. And that is to bring you what you desire. To do for you what you have commanded. God, to bring you that hallelujah because we have nothing else fit for the King of the world and the King of the universe. And so, God, I pray that you will speak in a mighty way through this passage. Whether we are gathered here in person or whether we are gathered online, God, I pray that we hear your words this morning. And, God, I pray that we are confronted. And I pray that we are changed from the inside out, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. For most of his life, Jeffrey Fowle had lived and worked in the state of Ohio. And 
Uh, one thing Jeffrey loved to do is he loved to travel. And so in 2014, uh, Jeffrey got uh, an opportunity to go on a sightseeing tour to North Korea. And some of you may have heard about the story. Some of you probably, many of you probably didn't. Uh, but he got them this chance to board this plane and to take off to North Korea and go and travel with this group. And uh, so they did. They, they boarded this plane. They went and they landed in North Korea. They traveled around for several days seeing these different sites and different things that uh, they, the, the North Koreans really build up or these for tourists. And uh, so uh, as they were getting to the end of their tour, they were almost to the air or they were at the airport and they decided uh, they were going to get on the plane. And so they were getting ready to go through security just like everybody has to do going through security. And the rest of Jeffrey's group got through security and got ready to go on their plane, and all of a sudden someone walked over to Jeffrey and said, you need to come with us. You're not getting on a plane today. You're going to be here with us for a little longer. You're going to be detained here for a little longer. You see, we have suspicion that you have, doing, you have been participating in indecent acts and crimes against the state of North Korea. You see, what they did was they had kind of launched this investigation in the last couple of days, and they'd found out that Jeffrey's indecent acts, his crimes against the state of North Korea, was that one day on the tour, a couple of days before the airport, uh, they were leaving for the airport, that he had gone to a club, this sailor's club, where there's restaurants, there's kind of karaoke there, and he went into the restroom, and he intentionally left a Bible there in the restroom so that someone would pick it up and someone would find it. And so they were able to track down that he was the one who did it. They were able to track down the one that, that he was the one who left the Bible there. And so in North Korea, this is a very serious crime. Because since about the 1940s or 1950s, uh, the Bible has pretty much been banned from all of North Korea. And so Jeffrey spent five months in a North Korean prison. And the only reason he spent only five months was because the Swedish government kind of acted as a mediator between us and North Korea uh, to, to negotiate his release. And so Jeffrey was actually one of the lucky ones. Even though it was five months, sounds like a terribly long time, it's actually relatively short compared to what most people would have got. You see, today, there's estimated somewhere between 50 and 70,000 Christians that are imprisoned in North Korea, right? And when I say they're in prison, they're not just in a comfortable jail, and they're in a concentration camp simply because of their faith. One author said that they are subject to mistreatment, such as unrestrained torture, massive starvation, and imprisonment and death by asphyxiation by gas chamber. The imprisonment, the torture, the execution all has one goal. It is simply to stop the gospel and stop the spread of the gospel. You see, the government of North Korea sees any religious activity as a threat to the power of the state of North Korea. In their mind, that if you become a Christian, if anyone becomes a Christian, then you automatically give your allegiance and your loyalty to someone besides the state of North Korea and its leaders. And so they believe that if they can stop the spread of the gospel, they can stop the, this infection that's been going through their country. And so they have done everything they can do to stop the spread of the gospel because they believe that the spread of the gospel of their power, continue, or the gospel continues to spread, its power will increase and their power will erode away and eventually fade to nothing. You see, while it may shock us that there are fifty to 70,000 Christians living in a concentration camp in just one country, that's just one country, not all the countries, that's one country in the world where fifty to 70,000 Christians are held in concentration camps, and, and for each one of them trying to spread the gospel, that may be shocking for us, but the truth is it's not just North Korea, that the gospel has always had 
enemies. It is from the very beginning, both public and private, there have always been people who have been actively opposed in trying to stop the mission and the message of Christ. And the very first one that we see in Scripture is this man named Herod. Right? Now, Herod, we, we know a lot about, there's a lot of information about Herod, not in Scripture, uh, but outside of Scripture that confirms what we know about Herod. But Herod was a Roman official, and he was over the region of Israel. And in fact, the Roman Senate had given him the title of King of the Jews. Now, for you guys that are familiar with the Bible stories, you know that that pops up somewhere else. That's at the crucifixion, right? And so, but for for Herod, he had been given this title by the Jew, by the Roman citizen or the Roman Senate that he was the king of the Jews. And man, I tell you, he took that title serious. He he was no joke, and he he was dead serious. He did a lot of good things. He did a lot of building projects to try to win people over. He's the one that helped rebuild the temple and, and expand the temple. And so he tried to do all these things, but really he was a ruthless man. He was feared. He was hated. Uh, he ruled the area with an iron fist, and this kind of leader that, that he wasn't interested in taking prisoners. That if he thought you were a threat to him, his goal was to eliminate you and make sure that you weren't going to step up and step over him. That you weren't going to cross him and you weren't going to try to take path or take uh, over his power in any way, shape, or form. You see, by the time we get to Matthew chapter 2, we don't get this from Scripture. We get this from other historians that tell us about Herod's life. By the time Matthew chapter 2 is happening, Herod's already been king of the Jews. He's already been ruling that place for 40 years. And in those 40 years, he's had several things that he's been able to accomplish. But in those 40 years, he's also had his first wife and his first son banished from that kingdom. Because he was fearful that they were going to try to take over. He had a second wife executed. He also had at least two of his kids, if not more of his own sons, executed. Because he had conspiracy charges brought against him. Because he thought they were secretly planning to kill him and take over his kingdom. And so you have this idea that Herod was not a gentle man. He was not going to sit back and let anybody just come in and take over his power. So I want you to imagine that Herod was not thrilled when all of a sudden these three wise men or Persians show up from the east. So these international scholars, these foreigners, they show up and their first question is, where is the one who's born king of the Jews? And for Herod, this is a major problem because he has that title. This is his title, that he is the one who is the king of the Jews. But he was given that title. And so when the wise men come to them, they said, hey, there's somebody who's born king of the Jews that has this title by birth, not given to him by another foreign power, that this person was born this way. We want to go see him. And so many of you know that story. Herod's like, fine. You need to, he gathers the scholars and they say, hey, Bethlehem's the place you should go look. And so he sends them to Bethlehem and he sends this word. He says, when you find him, come back and tell me because I want to go worship him too. And if we read on in the rest of this story, we find out that that was very, very far from the truth. In fact, they go back a different way in verse 12. It says, being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they, the wise men, returned to their own country another route. You see, they came through Jerusalem and then came south, but they go back a different way. They have to take the back roads instead because if we read in verse 13, we find out that, that Herod has no intentions of worshiping this king whatsoever. In verse 13, it says, After they had gone, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Get up. Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and stay there until I tell you. And here's the part I want you to focus on for right now. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. 
this child is less than two years old, and already Herod knows that he's going to be a problem. He already knows he's had enough of him. He's only two, and, and this is the kind of the first exposure that he's had to him. He already doesn't like him. This is a problem and a threat for his power. And, and so for Herod, his, his option is always going to go to was eliminate any threat to your power. Whether it was a wife, you get rid of them. You banish them, you execute them. If it was even a son, you eliminate the threat. You banish them or you execute them. Right? And so if there was ever any question, ever any thought of anybody coming in to take their power, uh, Herod is going to eliminate them. And this is what he does. And so he's not going to allow this child to grow up. He's not going to allow this child to linger. He's not going to allow rumors to start spreading. And so he, he willingly uh, goes to destroy this child. You see, in his mind, all the things that we know about Jesus can't happen if he can't get out of infancy, if he can't become an adult. You see, for him, we know that Jesus can't gather disciples and spread the gospel if he can't walk yet. He, he can't correct the Pharisees and demonstrate compassion and teach us what the kingdom of God looks like if he can't talk yet. He can't willingly lay down his life as a sacrifice for us if it's taken from him at such a young age. And so if Herod had been successful in wanting to destroy this child, it would have prevented the fulfillment of the gospel mission himself. So understand, he's not just trying to destroy a child. He's trying to destroy a whole movement. But I've got to share you something with you. In reality, the biggest enemy of the gospel is never a political position. It's always a personal position. You see, while Herod is a political figure, the reason he's opposed to the gospel, the reason he's opposed to this new king coming, is not for his politics, it's for his personal position. You see, Herod always wanted to be number one. Herod loved this idea of being king of the Jews. Herod loved that the whole world looked at him and he was self-centered and he had this attitude and actions that everything pointed to him. There was one person on Herod's throne, in the throne of Herod's life, and it was he himself. You see, his position is political, but the position of his opposition to the gospel is personal. No one is going to rule over this area until I'm dead. No one's going to take power from me. No one's going to control me. And so everyone and everything should center around me. It should focus on me. And at least if it's not going to, then it needs to get out of the way so that I can go through and I can do what I'm going to do. You see, for here, the concern is this one who's born king of the Jews means that there's only room for one king. And if there's a, someone who's born king of the Jews, then Herod cannot be the king of the Jews. For, for Herod, there, there cannot be two kings. And so it's either going to be Jesus who was born this way, or it's going to be Herod himself. And the reality is that in our lives, the same is true. There cannot be two kings of your life. It is either Jesus is going to sit on the throne of your life, or you're going to retain that seat for yourself. You're going to do everything within your power to, to fight that, to resist that. There's only one throne. And the question of Christmas really confronts us. is who is going to sit on that throne in your life? Who's the one who's going to be in control? And who's the one going to be the one in charge? You see, we can either choose Jesus or we can choose against Him. We can either choose to let Him sit on the throne He was born to sit on. Or we can choose to continue this self-centered, self-indulgent life. And when we do that, we are, in, we are joining with the enemies of the gospel. See, we become more like here than we ever thought we were. Because our goal in life is to retain control of our hearts, retain control of our life, retain control of our world and our own destiny, regardless of what it costs anybody else. I am the one in charge. And so as much as we'd like to, to demonize Herod, and we, we have reason to, we'll see that in just a moment, but as much as we like to shove him off the side and say, that's terrible, nobody could ever be like that, we find that we really live like this way more than we should. See, but the good news is that even if this most sinister plot of Herod 
Even though it, it surprised many people, it didn't catch God off guard. You see, even before Herod was conceived... God already knew that this was going to happen. He already knew this plan was going to take place. And so God, He's not surprised by it. In fact, He knew it. He anticipated it. And He had a plan to go around it. And He had this plan long before the situation ever took us by surprise. See, if we read back in verse 13, we read it, but I want to look back at it in just a moment. It says that we see Jesus in God's rescue plan as this relocation to a safer place. In verse 13, he says, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and stay there until I tell you. Right? Now, this is the second time that an angel appeared to Joseph in a dream. We'll talk about it a little bit more in just a little bit. But the first time that Joseph sees an angel in a dream is when he's, the, uh, the angel is telling Joseph, Hey, listen, it's fine. You need to go ahead and marry Mary. Because she hasn't been unfaithful to you. This child is different. This child is, is extraordinary. This child is the Savior of the world. And you need to call him Jesus. You need to marry Mary. And, and this, that was his first experience with an angel, at least that we know of. Right? And so this is the, the situation that they've been going in. And all of a sudden, this angel shows up to him again and says, Hey, I know you traveled all the way from there to here. You traveled 90 miles already to get to Bethlehem. But now you've got another place. You've got to leave the whole country. Don't just leave town. This guy is serious and this guy is dangerous. You need to leave the country. And so you need to travel about another 40 miles uh, to, to get out of the country. Basically, you need to go to a foreign land where you are a refugee physically, politically, and spiritually, a refugee into Egypt. Right? And if we read on in verse 14, we find out exactly that's exactly what Joseph did. He got up. And he left in the middle of the night. He did exactly what the angel said. And we'll come back to that part of the story in just a moment. But in verse 15, it says that Joseph, Mary, and Jesus, they stayed there until Herod's death. So what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt I called my son. You see, the end of that verse is actually a quote from the prophet Hosea. And Hosea is one of the minor prophets of the Old Testament. We don't get a lot of attention. We don't hear a lot about him. Uh, but he wrote this passage probably about 750 years before Christ was born. So I want you to understand that God knew Herod's intentions at least 750 years before Herod shows up on the scene. The reality is God knew it long before that. He just tells us about it. He lets us in on the plan 750 years before the birth of Christ. Right? And, and so we sometimes forget that while we're in these situations and circumstances and these things catch us off guard, that they never catch him off guard. In fact, it's kind of amazing if you read through this whole story that we just read through, there are three different, or excuse me, yeah, there are three different prophecies that are mentioned. Right? It's amazing when you try to connect all these to the fact because Jesus was born in Bethlehem, which is a prophecy. He moved to Egypt, which was prophesied. And then he moves to, to Na or there's the, the slaughter of the masters, which is prophesied. And then there's the, the moving of Jesus to Nazareth. And so all of these, God has been telling us this is going to happen. He's been telling this story the whole time. And so what we sometimes forget is when situations and circumstances, when they surprise us, they don't catch Him off guard. See, our present is God's past, and really our future is His past. He already knows what your life is going to look like. In fact, He already knows in 750 seconds from now what your life is going to be like. He knows in 750 minutes from now what your life is going to be like. In 750 hours, He knows what it's going to be like. In 750 days, He knows what it's going to be like. And for 750 years, He knows exactly what this world is going to look like. 
You see, listen, I want you to understand that when we read the newspaper and we, when we read all the news that's going on, I understand that it feels like this world is spinning out of control. I understand that sometimes your personal life, it doesn't make the newspaper, but it feels like this world is spinning out of control. And every day there's stories about mutated viruses and wars and natural disasters. There's violence. There's death. There's destruction everywhere. And, and honestly, it's overwhelming sometimes when we read all of this bad news and we forget that God has this plan. He is in control of it all. That the world is really not falling apart. It's really just falling into place. That God has a plan for the future. And all of these things are working according to His plan. He's not surprised by any of it when we work at, look at the world around us when we look at the future and the direction the world's handed we don't have to be afraid because we know the one who controls it we know the one who holds the future in fact we know the one who wrote the future thousands of years ago already you see he's revealed to enough of the future to us that we can face it with boldness and confidence and with hope. You see, the message of Christmas is there is hope for all of creation. And the, the, this hope doesn't end with Christmas. See, the prophet Isaiah, who's another prophet, writes about the same time in verse 46 and verse 9 and 10. He gives us this assurance. He says, Remember what happened long ago. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and no one is like me. Verse 10, I declare the ends from the beginning. From long ago, what is not yet done, saying, I plan, or excuse me, my plan will take place and I will do it. You see, the world has this idea that they're going to destroy the gospel and the gospel message, but God has a plan to preserve it. The world has this plan that they're going to stop the spread of the gospel message, but God has a plan to take it to the ends of the earth. The world might be trying to destroy your faith and your witness, but God says, I'm going to bless you and strengthen you and build you up in ways that you can't even imagine right now. You see, God is never taken by surprise. He always has our future. He always knows that there's a plan and, a, and something that can be done. And so God has always been working this plan. Your past hurts, your future current stresses, and your future surprises, they're all working for His glory and for our good. And the, the future never surprises Him. And we tend to forget that in the midst of chaos. We tend to forget that God is in control when everything looks like it's falling apart. When a political situation pops up, I'm like, man... I really wish that party didn't win. I really wish that judge wasn't there. I really wish this didn't happen. And we forget that God saw it all long before. It didn't catch him off guard. It didn't surprise him. We may be shocked when election results happen, but God never is. In the midst of our struggles, in the midst of our difficulties, in the midst of all the chaos we see, life never throws God a curveball. He never wakes up in the morning, picks up the pain, and be like, hmm, didn't see that one coming. Never. He never wakes up and is like, well, what am I going to do about this now? He never has to go back and have a plan B or a C or D because plan A is always happening. He sees it, he knows it, and it's already working. He's already planned it out. And he's already working everything for the situations that have happened and have ever happened and ever will happen. You see, the other thing that shouldn't surprise us because it doesn't surprise God that we see in this passage is not only that he knows the future, but he also knows the depths and the depravity of the human heart. See, what we're willing to do when we become self-centered, what we're willing to do to ensure our power, what we're willing to do when we take our, our focus totally off God and totally on ourselves. You see, when we do that, we continue reading this story, and we find a very extreme example of what it looks like when your life is all about you and not about anyone else. And when you see this, you see this selfish behavior and that our godliness really does hurt not just ourselves, but everyone around us. It affects everyone. You see, we read on 
in the story. And there's this selfish, godless person. And he takes this decision that affects everyone in a certain area. And the reality is this is an extreme example. And, and we're going to be honest, this, this is something that we're like, oh no, this is terrible. This is, is ridiculous that how bad this is. But this is exactly what happens when the world focuses on themselves instead of on God. Because they don't care who gets hurt in the process. You see, here it is so upset when the wise men, when they don't come back to him, that, that he gets extremely protective over his power. And he gets extremely concerned that the wise men didn't do what they wanted to do. And so honestly, he throws the extreme world's worst hissy fit, the temper tantrum. Why didn't they come back to me? Why didn't they listen to me? Why, why didn't they do what I asked them to do? Why is somebody coming after my power? And so he throws this hissy fit and the situation unfolds in verse 16. It says, when, then Herod, when he saw that he had been outwitted by the wise men, he flew into a rage. And he gave orders to massacre all the male children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, in keeping with the time that he had learned from the wise men. You see, this is called the slaughter or the massacre of the innocents. And what happens is that Herod is so upset that this child is still out there. He's so upset that he hasn't been able to stop the gospel from spreading yet. And so what he does is he goes back and he remembers the time that the, the wise men said, this is when the star appeared. And he says, all right, so if that's when the star appeared, then we're going to give us a few months extra just to make sure. And so any child that's two years old or under, we know we're looking for a male, any child that's two years or younger is going to fit in this category. And so we're going to destroy all of them. Every male child, two years old and younger, is going to be killed in and around Bethlehem because we're going to make sure that we get the one that we're looking for. And we don't care who else has to die in the process. We're going to make sure that we get this one. And he throws this terrible hissy fit. He throws this terrible thing. And there are folks, honestly, there are scholars that will say, this, this massacre of the innocent, this slaughter of the innocent, this didn't happen. And they'll read this story and they're like, that just, it doesn't sound like something that would be legitimate. It doesn't sound like something that could ever happen. In fact, they will even go as far as to say, that doesn't sound like something Herod would do. But I want to remind you, this is the same man who banished his first wife and his first son. This is the same man who, who executed his, first, his second wife. And at least two of his other sons have already been killed at this point, if not more of them. And so you really think if a man has a problem or doesn't have a problem killing his own kids, that he's going to have a problem killing somebody else's kids? It didn't stop him from killing his own. It's sure not going to stop him from killing somebody else's. This sounds extremely exactly like his character. This sounds like a man who's so self-centered... And so worried about losing control that he's willing to kill his own family. He's sure going to do it to somebody else's. You see, this is an extreme case. But I want you to understand that except for the grace of God, this is the depth of the depravity of the human heart. When we are so self-centered, we are so self-focused, when everything in this world should revolve around us, we don't care about God and we don't care about His creation and we don't care who we have to step on or who we have to hurt to get to what we want. You see, they're willing to do anything and take anything to keep our focus off of God. They're willing to do anything to retain the illusion that you have power over your own life. The power to control. And we honestly will do anything we can. And we don't care who gets hurt in the process. See, when the world resolves, revolves around us, and when centered of the world is us, then I don't care what happens to anybody else or how bad it hurts them. I don't care 
whether it's someone's child or anything else. And so I want you to understand that when we read stories in the newspaper that are so shocking to us, how could anyone sink to that level? How could anyone do this to their own child? Or how could anyone do that to another person? All we have to do is look at the depths and the depravity. This is what it looks like when we have to be number one and God cannot be number one. And see, the same thing is true in every heart that is opposite or opposed to the gospel message of Christ. And you're like, well, I, I would never go to that place. I would never sink to that level. I would never go to that extent. And I've got to be honest with you, Herod probably never thought he would either. I've got to be honest with you, I've never met a drug addict that walked up one day and be like, you know what, my goal in life is I'm going to be a drug addict. I've never met an alcoholic that said, I'm going to go and I'm going to be an alcoholic. I'm going to ruin my life and everybody else's life around me. I've never met a murderer who that was their intent was to go out and be from a child to go out and kill somebody. Nobody thinks they can sink to that level. I've never met a person who was happily married and then had an affair and said, that was my goal when I got married. Nobody thinks they could sink to that level. Nobody thinks that's the depth of the depravity of their own heart until it happens and until they do it. You see, we see this story and we're like, Herod was so terrible. The reality is, Herod is no more terrible, no more corrupt than any of us who are not part of who Christ, or not part of the gospel message. See, this is the depths of the depravity that we are all capable of if we choose to uh, oppress the gospel rather than obey the gospel. And that's the last thing this passage teaches us, that when we are confronted with Christmas, we have only two choices. We either choose to obey and accept the gospel and the Lordship of Christ, or we choose to oppress it and oppress it and fight against it. See, I told you earlier that Joseph had seen an a, a angel in a vision before, in a dream before. In, in chapter 1, he, he tells this story, Matthew tells this story about Joseph seeing this angel. And so this is the second time and the third time that he sees this angel. And the first time, uh, again, is, is the angel's telling him that Mary's not been unfaithful to you, and, and so you need to, to marry her. Right? And so I want to take you back to chapter 1 for just one verse. Right? In Matthew chapter 1, verse 24, I want you to see what it says. It says, When Joseph woke up, he did as the angel commanded him. He married her. Okay? So I want you to understand that he encounters this angel... All right, And he experienced or he sees this angel in a vision. And I can't tell you what that looked like. I can't tell you any more details than what Scripture. I don't know what that experience was like for Joseph. But I know it didn't wake him up. I know that he didn't go knock on Mary's door right then and it's like, Hey, listen, we got to do this right now. Because it doesn't seem to interrupt his sleep pattern at all. It just says when he woke up. He went and did. So there seems to be this, this pause or this hesitation between when the angel showed up and told him this, and then that's fine, I'll do it, it's no rush. And then we get to chapter 2. See, after in chapter 2, it is after the birth of Christ. And after all that has happened and all that Joseph has seen and experienced, and he's sat there in the manger and he's held this newborn child and he's walked with him, he's tried to keep him from crying at night, and, and he's seen the angels, or he's seen the shepherds show up, he's seen the star appear, all these things that we think are, are just part of the Christmas story, Joseph experienced them firsthand. And he sees this, and all of a sudden he's confronted with this. It's amazing. And we see it in the way he reacts to the angels showing up the second time and the third time. You see, in the second time, we already read it and we already talked about it. The second time, the angel says, get up and go. And, angel, and, and Joseph does exactly that. 
He gets up in the middle of the night and he takes off to Egypt. And like, well, he had to because the guy was coming to destroy him. Yeah, but he didn't have to right then. It didn't say, Herod's coming right now, get up and walk out. But he did. He got up and he went right then. And so then we look at the second or the third time he appears in verse 19. It says, After Herod died, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. In verse 20, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, because those who sought your child's life are dead. I want you to notice this in verse 21. So he got up. And the child and his mother entered the land of Israel. Do you notice the difference between verse 21 and what we saw in, in chapter 1? There's not a when he got up. So he got up. There's not a hesitation. There's not a pause. There's no waiting around. Like, oh, that can wait till in the morning. Oh, I can take care of that later. When this happens, he does it right then. There is no hesitation. There's no pausing. This is complete obedience, complete submission. Hey, this angel said it. I've seen all that's happened over Christmas, and there's no way that I can't do this right now. And so when the angel speaks to him this time, his, his, his resolve and his, this, the, the obedience is just cemented in this situation that all of this happens, and he just there's no question for him. There's no reason to wait around that when God shows up and he speaks through this angel, go do it now. You see, for Joseph, Christmas cemented and strengthened his resolve to obedience. When Joseph experienced Christmas, his obedience was so astounding that when God spoke, there wasn't a, oh, I'll wait till morning. I'm going to do it, and I'm going to do it right now. That's what happens when Joseph is confronted with all that's happened at Christmas. But you see, Herod is driven to the other end of the spectrum. We've already read it. We have already know what happened We've already seen the story. See, Joseph took to the extreme of, I'm going to extremely be obedient to God. And when he speaks, man, I'm on it. I'm going to do it right now. And here it says, when God speaks, I'm going to do everything I can to fight against it. You see, the choice of Christmas, and when Christmas confronts us, it leaves us with these two choices. We either obey or we oppress. See, while Joseph obeys, here it oppresses. While Joseph demonstrates what it looks like to, to give up power and to say, you are God and I will do everything you tell me to, here it says, I am God and I will fight against you every tooth and nail, every breath I have. And so while Joseph obeys, Herod oppresses. And it's easy to look at these two characters and be like, oh, that's a story that happened a long time ago. That's Herod. He was a terrible guy anyway. But the truth is, Christmas confronts us and demands these same two responses. What difference did Christmas really make? Did you sit at a candlelight service? Did you have communion? Did you sit with family and all of a sudden your resolve to be obedient to God was strengthened and cemented in that moment? And if God told you to get up and go to a foreign country right now, you would jump up and you would say, let's go. And you would do it, not to protect your family, because that's what God said to do. Or for some of you, you sat and you, sing, you came to candlelight service, you, you saw communion, maybe you partook in communion, and all it made you do was feel this gut wrench inside, because that meant you couldn't be in charge of your own life anymore. That meant that somebody else was going to sit on the throne. And so when we are confronted with Christmas, which we have all been, there is demands these two responses, either total surrender or total war against Him. We are either a friend of God or we're an enemy of the gospel. There is no middle ground. And so the question really is, not did Christmas change you, but to what extent did Christmas change you? Let's pray together.